I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yes, somebody tell me you make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a shitload of Batman comics because, as some of you may have heard, there is a new Batman movie on the way, and I don't know, this seemed like a pretty interesting way to mark the occasion, and so that's what I've been doing lately. So, anyway. Now, for a goodly bit of this this sort of six episode mega series that I'm working my way through right now primarily what I've been focusing my attention on is the year one annuals from uh, 1995 which as the name might suggest basically features Batman running into a bunch of weird bullshit during his first year on the job right but I'm gonna break with that at least a little bit today because well, today's, today's comic really has nothing to do with the year one annual event from 1995, but it is nevertheless a vaguely year one type of story, or put it this way. In terms of canon, actually I'm not even sure if this story really even is canon anymore, for that matter if it ever was canon, but to whatever degree this story is or isn't canon, it's part of my head canon, and that's what matters. And in my head canon, this story takes place during Batman's first year on the job, right? Now, how does that actually work with the existing established post-crisis uh, post continuity of Batman and, and all of that stuff? Guys, I have no fucking idea. All I can say is that this is in my head canon. This is uh, part of Batman's first year on the job, and that's how I choose to interpret it. Continuity be damned. Because that's kind of the whole point of head canon. You get to decide what is and is not canon. So, you might ask, what exactly am I going to be talking about today? Well, you see, it's actually rather simple. Today's comic is going to be Legends of the Dark Knight number 50. Now, guys, I've said, I think on more than one occasion at this point, that I'm a fan of Legends of the Dark Knight from way back. I 
loved the idea of Legends of the Dark Knight. For those of you who don't know, basically it was this... It was basically a new Batman title that launched in 1989, and the, the premise of it was actually kind of unique in comics at that time, in as much as there wasn't going to be a single creative team that worked on Legends of the Dark Knight. Basically, the idea was to have a rotating team come in for every new storyline so that whoever wrote the first storyline in Legends of the Dark Knight, well, that person won't be coming back for the next storyline, and neither will that artist. A new writer and a new artist are going to come in to handle the next storyline, and then a new writer and a new artist come in for the next one, and then so on and so forth, right? That's basically the shtick of Legends of the Dark Knight, and as I've said before, damned if that doesn't sound a lot like the modern comic book industry, does it? So, anyway, that was basically the idea for Legends of the Dark Knight, and what I like about this story is, or not the story, what I like about Legends of the Dark Knight as a title is that irrespective of whether or not every single issue is a bona fide classic, and guys, to be fair, it's kind of a mixed bag there, but whether or not every single story in Legends of the Dark Knight qualifies as like a genuine classic, I think the intention of Legends of the Dark Knight is actually a pretty good one, you know, like, I guess the ambition of it, you know, what were these guys all trying to do? And ultimately, what it really comes down to is just tell a good story and not really worry too much about continuity. So again, kind of sounds like the modern comic book industry, doesn't it? So anyway, and my opinion is that if you just take it, however long Legends of the Dark Knight was around, I don't know, like 10 years or something like that, if you just take 10 years of Detective Comics or 10 years of Batman, you know, the monthly title, Batman, and you just start counting toes, what I think you're going to discover is there are as many good and entertaining stories in that 10-year run of Detective Comics or whatever other title as compared to the entire run of Legends of the Dark Knight. So, you know, when people say that, you know, Legends of the Dark Knight, it could be kind of hit and miss usually more miss than hit. It just kind of makes me think, well, what is your standard of comparison? You know, I just, I've never completely understood that. And honestly, the, the standout parts of Legends of the Dark Knight, to me, they're worth the mediocre stories that you'd get from time to time. But guys, I'm at a real loss to think of a time, or not a time, I'm at a real loss to think of an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight that after I read it, I I just think to myself, man, that was a real piece of shit. I mean, maybe there is a story like that uh, out there somewhere and I just, I'm not remembering it. I don't know. But nothing really like that stands out to me. Whereas, you know, there are issues of of Detective Comics or issues of Batman or, or whatever where, guys, I laughed. All right? And... That's because the story was unintentionally funny. I mean, you know, whatever it is that the writers and artists were going for fell fucking flat, all right? But Legends of the Dark Knight, I think it's about as strong as any other Batman title, and I might even go so far as to say stronger than, I don't want to say most, but a lot of them, put it that way, a lot of... 
Guys, we've all read worse Batman titles than Legends of the Dark Knight. All right, put it that way. So, but for as good as Legends of the Dark Knight could sometimes be, you know, because like I say, not all the stories were mediocre. Sometimes they hit some really good stories. But as but for as good as it could sometimes be, now and then, my God's honest opinion is Legends of the Dark Knight actually touched greatness. And one such example of that is Legends of the Dark Knight number 50. This is a story called Images. And the basic shtick of this is this is... A sort of a loose retelling of the first Joker story in Batman number one. It's not exactly a shot-for-shot remake. You know, it's not a case where A is A, but you really can't overlook the similarities to it, you know? And as I say, you know, how canonical was this story really supposed to be? Guys, I don't know. But it's been inside my headcanon for a long, long time time now so anyway maybe that's about as good an introduction as we need to get for legends of the dark knight number 50 cover date is early september 1993 on sale date is july the 13th 1993 penciler is brett blevins inker is brett blevins writer is dennis o'neill colorist is digital chameleon letterer is willie schubert because that's how i choose to pronounce that name Cover artists are Brian Bolland and Rachel Burkett. Editors are Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. Story synopsis for Images is as follows. Story begins with the Joker meeting with some of the most prominent mob bosses in all of Gotham City to discuss his ingenious plan to run an extortion racket. The plan basically consists of making a threat to a wealthy man that they're going to kill him, and then they do, in fact, kill him. And then the next man they threaten will pay any amount of money to save his own life. The mafia bosses are not exactly convinced by this plan, and they say so, but right at that moment, Batman breaks into the place and beats the shit out of all the gangsters. However, he's not really sure who the clown is, and so the Joker tells him that he's just a random clown that they kidnapped, to provide entertainment. Batman is, let's face it, kind of busy tying the criminals up, so he lets the Joker go on his way, and that's when one of the goons says, hey, jerk, the clown that you just allowed to leave? Yeah, that's the Joker. Elsewhere, the Joker arrives at his hideout in a trailer park where his cousin Melvin Rypan is preparing some type of chemical compound for the Joker. When Melvin finishes his work, the Joker tells him to go outside and take a walk while he stays behind to test the chemical on Melvin's cat and then record his first death threat to Henry Haight, a wealthy Gotham City banker. Elsewhere, Captain James Gordon is leaving the GCPD parking garage when another cop asks him him for a ride home. During the ride, the officer reveals himself to be Batman and they discuss the death threat made by the Joker, after which Batman abruptly vanishes. Back in the Batcave, Bruce tells Alfred that he'll be attending the Chamber of Commerce fundraiser dinner where Henry Haight is supposed to be the keynote speaker. During the ceremony, there are police officers providing security. However, 
Haight begins laughing uncontrollably during the middle of his speech, after which he falls down dead. He dies with a spooky rictus grin plastered to his face. Luckily, Bruce manages to take the copy of Haight's speech without anybody noticing, and back in the Batcave, he analyzes the paper and discovers traces of some strange chemical compound which is apparently activated by body heat and then absorbed through the skin. Bruce recalls that Wayne Industries has started researching these types of chemical compounds as well and decides to check there for more information. Meanwhile, back in the Joker's hideout, the mob bosses have made bail and are meeting with the Joker once again. This time, they're a lot more receptive to the Joker's ideas of extorting money from rich people. They announce that they want in. Elsewhere, Batman once again pays a visit to Gordon in his office, and Gordon tells him that the Joker has made another death threat, this one against George Partridge. Gordon says that this time, the entire police department is going to provide security. Batman says that while Gordon does all of that, he's going to investigate this case from another angle. That night, the GCPD have set up an in-fucking-credible array of security around George Partridge. The whole place is a fortress, and, at least in theory, there really should be no way for the Joker to get inside. However, right at the stroke of 8 o'clock, Partridge begins laughing uncontrolled, uh, uncontrollably and then dies the exact same way that Henry Haight did, with an eerie grin plastered to his face. A short time later, Bruce calls Gordon and tells him to search, uh, search the body for puncture wounds because... The poison would had to have been administered earlier because that's the only way it could have been done. Alfred then asks Bruce if he has any destination in mind as they cruise through the city, and Bruce remarks that they're on their way to the Happy Camper Trailer Park, which is to say, the home of Melvin Rypan. Rypan is an idiot savant. He's a genius with, with chemistry, but he's pretty much a child when it comes to anything else. He used to be an employee of Wayne Enterprises, but he was recently fired. Rypan could have created the Joker's chemical mixture because Rypan's childish nature could have been easily manipulated. Bruce just happens to glance out the, the car window at that moment and sees Melvin Rypan driving a pickup truck in the opposite direction, so he tells Alfred to turn around and follow that truck. The Joker, who's seen the whole thing, demands that Rypan lose the limo that's following them as Batman swoops into action. Batman dives through the air, lands on the hood of the pickup truck, punches through the windshield, and smashes the Joker in the face. The Joker jerks the steering wheel and drives the truck off the pier into the river while Batman is left hanging onto the bridge, watching the trunk... Uh, whoops. Watching the truck sink to the bottom. Back in the Batcave, Batman analyzes the glove from his Batman suit, searching for something that apparently isn't there. After calling Gordon, Batman is informed that the police found the Joker's uh, body in the river, and so Batman swings by the morgue to check it out. Batman rubs the dead body's hand and notices that, it, that doing so has wiped makeup off the corpse's skin. Batman then hauls balls to Otto Drexel's place, which is to say another wealthy man, that's being blackmailed for money and asks him about the people who are extorting him. Back in the Batcave, Batman realizes that the, the, 
the body that was found at the bottom of the river has to be somebody else, be, uh, and they were disguised as the Joker so as to throw the police off the trail, and so he decides to set a trap for the Joker. Later, the Joker and his goons collect payment from Otto Drexel, and cash in hand, the Joker notices that a tracking device has been hidden inside the briefcase containing all the money. The Joker tosses the tracking device inside the helicopter that they were going to use to escape, and then he sends the pilot on his way. The Joker is then left with two of his goons on the rooftop. One of the goons starts talking to the Joker and tells him that he now knows why his voice is familiar to him. He takes off his hat and trench coat, revealing himself to be Batman in disguise. Batman then explains to the Joker that he now realizes that he, meaning the Joker, was once the Red Hood, but after falling into that vat of acid, his appearance and his voice have both changed. The Joker gets ten different kinds of pissed off just at the sight of Batman and moves in to attack, but his, bunt, his punch barely has any kind of effect on Batman. Batman, in turn, then knocks, him, knocks the Joker out with one punch. One punch. Sometime later, Alfred takes Bruce to the Gotham City Cemetery to pay his respects to Melvin Rypan, for whom Bruce has bought a lavish tomb and arranged a proper burial because he feels responsible for Melvin's death. It's revealed that the Joker murdered Melvin and then disguised him as the Joker in the hopes of slowing the cops and Batman down. In the end, Bruce is glad that the Joker is never going to be a threat to Gotham City ever again. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, as I say, to me, this story is a bona fide classic, right? First off, I mean, you've got this just killer Brian Ballen cover, and I'm not exactly the world's biggest killing joke fan, but guys, as far as I know, everybody loves the art from The Killing Joke. And seeing more of that type of art here on the cover of Legends of the Dark Knight number 50, I don't know. I just, I, I, I dig it. I mean, there are certain artists out there that are just very well suited to drawing the Joker. And Brian Ballin, God bless him, he's just got a gift, you know? So I dig that. But another reason I just, I kind of dig this, dig this story is... Guys, I don't know when the fuck this happened, but there came a point when the Joker stopped being a criminal. And he even really stopped being a supervillain. And instead, he just became a mass murderer, you know? And it's like every time he escapes from Arkham, all he does is just go on a huge killing spree, you know? And that just... I don't know. I don't like that. I've never liked that. You know, what I want are stories where the Joker commits fucking crimes. And that's what we get in this story. You know, basically, this is a scam for the Joker to scare up a lot of money. And yeah, he has to kill people along the way in order to do that. But that's not really the object of what he's doing. The object of what he's doing is getting money, and getting the money requires killing a bunch of people, you know? But he's not on a killing spree just for the hell of it, you know what I mean? And I just miss these kinds of stories. You know, I wish we could get a story where 
the Joker actually commits fucking crimes, you know? It just kind of bothers me that, you know, the Joker has been reduced to being just kind of a terrorist in in, in a sense. You know, that just, I don't like that, you know? Another thing that this issue has going for it, though, is Brett Blevins' art. Now, like, now I said a minute ago that Brian Bolland, he's got the knack when it comes to the Joker. There's something about the Joker that just plays to Brian Bolland's strengths as a as an artist and as a painter. And that's not to take anything away from Brian Bolland or Brett Blevins when I say that Brett Blevins' Joker is very different from Brian Bolland's, but they're both, to me, in a weird kind of way, they're both kind of archi- archetypal sort of Joker. You know what I mean? Right here on page one, we see this, we, we see uh, Brett Blevins' I guess, sort of first pass at the Joker. And he's just fucking scary just to look at. You know, I mean, this is a guy who, notwithstanding the fact that, yes, he is a thief and he's an extortionist and all that, he is a killer, you know? I don't mind the Joker being portrayed as a killer. What I mind is the Joker being portrayed as just a killer. But yes, he is, in fact, a killer. And just to look at him right here on page one, you instantly know this guy is fucking deadly. You know, and I dig that. I like that the Joker can be, on the one hand, yes, a very dangerous criminal, but yes, he's also a killer. He's two, He's both of those things at the same time. And it's like Brett Blevins gets that, you know? I don't know. It's. I just think it's really well done. That's the point. So anyway. And actually, at the bottom of page one, what we're actually seeing is uh, there's this uh, there's this little caption that says that uh, it says suggested by the work of Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Now, the next caption says a tale from the early days by, and then it lists off the credits to the story. And there's nothing here that actually comes right out and says, you know, this is sort of an updated retelling of the Joker story from Batman number one. But if you're familiar with that story, you'll see the similarities here as we go along. Now, like I say, it's not a shot-for-shot remake. You know, this isn't a straight retelling of it. Denny O'Neill definitely goes in his own directions with the story. And Brett Blevins definitely goes his own way with the art. But you can tell when they're paying sort of homage to the original story. And I, I just dig that. So, getting into the story proper, what I kind of like about this is, in the original Joker story, it's basically Joker versus the mob, and Batman kind of gets in the way. And here, what we see is Joker is kind of, he's sort of co-opting the mob, in a sense. He's kind of working with the mob, and using them to accomplish his ends, you know? And I kind of like the idea that the Joker and the other costumed supervillains and Batman's rogues gallery, they kind of gradually took over the Gotham City underworld. I mean, I don't mind uh, stories like Dark Victory, which actually show the transition from pinstriped mobster to garishly costumed supervillain. I don't mind stories like that. But I kind of like the idea of the process. Again, this kind of goes back to headcanon. I kind of like the idea of the transition being a little bit more gradual. 
You know, one day it's just mobsters that are running around in Gotham City. And then there comes a day when they start working with the Joker. And then it progresses and it progresses. And, I've, and after a while, there's just no room for the mob in, in, in Gotham City anymore. And I just like that. You know, I think that's that's a good way to show a transition from what had been to what is and it's it's a really good way of of doing it you know and that's not a major focal point of the story don't get me wrong you know the transition from gangster to supervillain but like i say that's just kind of the nature of headcanon it can get a little bit hazy sometimes so anyway batman swoops into action on page 4 crashes through the mirror and it's just this kind of neat little glory shot where the joker says look in the mirror and behold the future of crime. And then like the punctuation to that is Batman smashing through the mirror. And I, I, I kind of like the optics of that, you know, but then, you know, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I mean, I am a guy. I've got the guy chromosome. I just like seeing Batman kick the shit out of people. And that is exactly what we get right here on page five. You know, Batman just swoops into action. There's this kind of really neat moment where Batman does some capage uh, in a uh, panel two right here on page five. And then after that, he ninja kicks one mobster right in the face and he ninja kicks another mobster right in the face. And at the whole, you know, the whole time he's doing this, I mean, he's breaking noses, he's knocking out teeth, he's fracturing skulls. I mean, these guys are getting hurt, like just really fucking bad, you know? And then finally, and this is on page seven, finally, uh, Batman just stalks over to the to the last mobster standing, pounds him right in the fucking mouth, knocks more of this guy's teeth out, and then that's pretty much the end of the fight. And the entire time that this thing is going, it's like the Joker is scoring Batman's uh, moves like he's an Olympic judge, and he's giving 9 out of 10 points. And another nine out of ten points. He's deducting five points. And, you know, it's just, it, it's really neat. And that's actually going to come up again later at the, at the end of, at the end of this story. But the last punch that Batman gives, the Joker says, a rather boring punch. No style. No elan. Not worth a bit more than 6.5. I confess, I am a trifle disappointed. And anyway, it's just like, that's what the Joker would do, you know? I mean, during their first meeting, the Joker might do something, you know, kind of trollish, kind of jokey like this, you know? I mean, you know, the next time that the Batman swoops into a room and starts beating the shit out of everybody, the Joker's gonna, he's hitting the door. He's running out of there, you know? But he's not doing that here. It just seems like, this is just a really good little character moment for the Joker that in the middle of all of this uh, violence and ass kicking and stuff that's going on, the Joker is just kind of passively watching and he's just kind of sarcastically grading Batman's performance. I just fucking dig that. That is, <laughs> that is just such a Joker thing to do, you know? And after that, and this is on page nine, at the top of page nine, one of the mobsters tells Batman that, yeah, you just let the Joker go. And obviously Batman's heard of the Joker. And we're going to get a little bit more into this later in the issue. But what needs to be said is 
this story is definitely taking place in a universe where Frank Miller's year one is in continuity. That is how Batman started. You know, Batman has obviously heard of the Joker, but he's never seen him before. And we're going to circle back to that a little bit later. But I just kind of want you guys to salt that little bit of information away right now. This is this is basically the same universe as, as year one. Or at least it wants to be, put it that way. But another just kind of neat little moment here is at uh, the top of page one. Uh, uh, not page one, sorry. Page nine, panel one, where Batman, he's somehow standing in a brightly lit room, but he's covered in shadows anyway. I don't know how the hell he does that, but somehow fucking he does that. And it's just really fucking neat. You can see the silhouette of his eyes. You can see his teeth. And this is a Batman who's pissed off. He's going into full interrogation and intimidation mode, you know, and... Basically, he gets the information that he wants from this mobster, and I just like this. I love it when artists do this, right? They basically throw Batman in all of this shadow. You can see his teeth. You can see the whites of his eyes, but that's it. You're not really seeing a whole lot of detail, and it just kind of gives Batman this kind of elemental type of thing. I don't know. I just, I dig this, you know, really well done. So, anyway... Moving on from there, this uh, getting into a page 10, we get a little bit of, actually at the bottom of page 9 really is probably where this starts, uh, the Joker drops in on his cousin, Melvin Rypan, and Melvin basically, he starts greeting the Joker as some kind of name beginning with J.A., before the, the Joker cuts him off. So he could be saying James, or he could be saying Jack. He could be saying anything, you know? Now, the last name, Rai Pan, that itself is the name Napier, backwards. And so I'm going to suggest to you that what Denny O'Neill may be going for here is for us to assume that the Joker's name, at least to start with, was Jack Napier, and he doesn't want to come right out and just, like, tell us that. Because for some reason, the Joker having a real name or the Joker having an origin story, something like that, that's bad. But, or at least that's what some fans want to say, anyway. But he does give us a little bit of rope there, you know? Is that what Denny O'Neill wants us to think? Well, if you want the answer to be yes, you've got a leg to stand on, you know? And anyway... One of the things that kind of comes out, especially on page 11, is that the Joker has been basically psychologically abusing Melvin, which one would think is probably not that hard to do because somebody who's mentally handicapped the way that Melvin is, he's basically an eight-year-old child. And I don't know this from personal experience, but I would imagine that psychologically abusing or emotionally abusing an eight-year-old probably isn't very hard to do, you know? And that's exactly what's going on here, you know? He basically... Melvin kind of talks around it, but he, he says to the Joker, you said if I made this stuff, meaning that that chemical compound, you said if I made this stuff for you, you'd help me with my small problem. 
And then the Joker says, you mean your hideous, ghastly, revolting, nauseating ugliness? That problem? And then we finally get our first good look at Melvin Rypan. And he looks pretty normal, you know? And I, and in fact, actually, this is at the bottom of page 11, the very last panel. He not only looks kind of normal, Digital Chameleon, they colored... This was, guys, it, for those of you who weren't around back in the early 90s, the type of coloring job that we see on Melvin's face, guys, this was cutting fucking edge back in those days, right? Back in early 1993... To have coloring like this, it you didn't see this in just every comic that came along, you know, with um, the different uh, flesh tones and stuff that that you can see on Melvin's face, the coloring to his eyes and all that stuff, guys, or or the shading to his hair. This stuff was cutting fucking edge, all right. And so it, you know, I just remember really liking this panel when I was a kid, just because it looked so different from a lot of other comics that were out there. But I think there's a little bit of artistic effect that's going on here, where Digital Chameleon or somebody, wanted to drive home the point that Melvin Rypan looks very normal. In fact, if anything, he's actually kind of good-looking, if anything. But the Joker has been gaslighting this guy so fucking badly that now, the jo uh, or rather, now Melvin truly does believe he looks like Quasimodo or something like that. And the Joker's using that as leverage to get what he wants from from Melvin. Now, to be fair, it's not that the Joker originated this. It's actually pretty clear that basically this all starts with Melvin's very abusive mother, and the Joker is just basically picking up where she left off, right? But even so, I mean, this is, this is just horrible, you know? I mean, the Joker ha has done a lot of horrible things, just in his publication history. But guys, this is just fucking terrible, you know? Because look, it's one thing to take out a gun and shoot somebody in the head. It's another thing to just psychologically tear somebody apart every moment of every day for their whole lives. And that's what the Joker has done. You know, I mean, there's taking somebody's life, but then there's killing them as a person. Like, just as a... As... as normal a life as Melvin Rypan might have ever aspired to, even taking that away from him. I mean, that's just fucking dark, you know? But I dig the fact that, you know, the Joker destroys people, you know? And sometimes he takes their life, but sometimes he does other things too. And speaking of doing other things, what we see the Joker do on page 13 is he kills Melvin's cat. Now, there are probably very few happy aspects to Melvin Rypan's life. I mean, just think about that. What a strange fate that would be to live life as Melvin Rypan. But for as bad as that is, you know, his cat is probably one of the few, like, really positive things that Melvin has going for him. And the Joker tests Melvin's chemical compound... Knowing that it's probably going to kill the cat, he tests it on the cat anyway. Again, this guy's just fucking dark. And the entire time, you know, the Joker has this evil grin on his face. And, you know, that's just kind of... 
par for the course, I guess. One of the things that I'd kind of like to see artists do with the Joker, like in the future, you know, I mean, he's had a very devilish looking grin for a long time now. I think it might be kind of, from an artistic standpoint, it might be actually kind of interesting to, to just kind of see what you might do with the Joker having a little bit more of an angelic smile, you know, a little bit more of an innocent smile. As he runs around doing all of these terrible things, you know, he doesn't have like this, you know, mustache twirling, evil, demonic smile. He has a little bit more of an innocent smile as he does all of these horrible things. I just think that might be an interesting artistic effect. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, though. Anyway, getting uh, getting into uh, other things on page 13, at the bottom of page 13 and then getting into page 14, we see Batman change clothes literally between panels. You know, he goes from basically full police officer gear to full Batman gear between panels. And what I what I kind of like about Danny O'Neill as a writer is that people will comment on these inhuman things that Batman is supposedly capable of. And Batman, he doesn't really give you a full answer. He just gives you a partial answer. And in this case, Gordon says... How'd you change clothes so fast? I only looked away for a second. And Batman says, practice. And then they go into their actual conversation, you know? So you know that there's an intrinsically human element to this. We just don't find out what that is. And on the one hand, that may seem kind of unthinkable. But guys, any of you who have seen, I guess, the craft of stage magician, you've seen those lightning fast costume changes they do Well, where what they'll do is they'll come out and they're wearing a tuxedo and then they hold up a curtain and then instantly take it right back down and now they're wearing scuba outfit. You know, and how does that work? Well, it's an illusion, you know? So there's a very rational, very plausible, very, for lack of a better way, scientific explanation for how they do this. They're just not showing it to you. But there is a craft to that and it's not actual magic, you know? And... Whatever that craft is, Batman has obviously mastered it because he does it right here. And so, you know, it. on the one hand, it may seem magical or it may seem inhuman. But we've all seen stage magicians do that exact same thing a thousand fucking times. And it stands to reason that Batman would study that craft too. Yeah, he, he studied criminology. He's an amazing uh, a detective. He studied martial arts. He's an amazing fighter. He's a, he, he's probably the most powerful ass kicker in all of Gotham City. But he's also done other things, too. If he wanted to, he could be a stage magician. He's practiced sleight of hand. He knows how to do simple tricks and illusions. Uh, he knows how to do that kind of stage magic type stuff. You know, all of that goes into creating who and what Batman is. You know, he studied psychology. So he knows that certain things when you do them will scare the shit out of people you know all of this goes into creating what batman is you know as like a public entity as a boogeyman for gotham city you know it's not just one thing he's not just an ass kicker or he's not just a he's not just like a detective par excellence he's not just one thing he's all of these things he's a stage magician he's um he's a psychologist he's a detective He's a brawler, you know, he's an ass kicker. He's all of that stuff. That's what Batman is. He's everything, you know, and that's what Bruce Wayne had to do 
in order to be this, you know? And I just like that. You know, you get little hints of that sometimes. You know, these little tantalizing kind of hints at, you know, some of the stuff that Batman has had to do in order to become what he is, you know? And Denny O'Neill never overplayed it, but he throw that in there a little bit once in a while. And I just, I just fucking dig that. That's great. Oh, and speaking of how Batman came to be at the bottom of page 14, we see Batman um, basically holding himself up by one hand off of one of those Olympic rings that athletes swing around on. He's holding himself straight up by his hand and basically doing a handstand, but on one hand. And again, you know, how the hell much practice does something like that take? I don't know, but apparently Bruce Wayne did enough of it because here he is. And I just fucking dig that, you know? Ah, just, it's really cool. And the art here, you know, I mean, look, it's one thing to show somebody do something like incredibly athletic or what have you, but if the art isn't done right, it's just going to fall apart. And here, you know, Brett Blevins, he keeps Bruce's posture perfectly straight. I mean, we're talking like stiff as a board so that his balance looks right. And you could believe that somehow it's possible for him to do what he's doing here, even though I don't actually know if this is possible, at least the way it's shown on the page, but it looks believable. And that's what counts, you know? So anyway, um, moving right along at the bottom of uh, page 15, uh, we get into uh, Gordon's little moment here with Henry Haight. And what I like about this is, you know, Brett Blevins, I don't know why he doesn't get all the praise and credit from uh, fans that I think he should. I don't know why that is. But Henry Haight, he has this just kind of pompous, kind of, uh, I don't know, just sort of sniveling, just kind of annoying sort of demeanor about him. And in just two panels, you instantly understand just what a smarmy little prick this guy has got to be just in his day-to-day -day life. You know, what is this guy like at the office every day? Well, you get a little bit of a taste of it here. This sort of know-it-all who nobody can tell him anything, you know, because this guy's got all the answers, you know, and instantly gives you a little bit of insight into who Henry Haight is in a way that I just don't think is readily apparent on the, the page of the script. Brett Blevins goes that extra little step in showing this guy to just be just kind of, uh, just kind of a blowhard. I mean, I don't know. Words are failing me, but this unlikable is basically what I'm talking about here. And Gordon is picking up on that same thing I am because you can see he's kind of sneering at Henry Haight and he says, if you say so, Mr. Haight. And of course, this ends up being a fatal mistake for Mr. Henry Haight. So anyway, I just, I just dig that. And there comes a moment though, speaking of just like kind of creepy shit, there comes a moment, this is at the top of page 18, where hate finally dies, like the, the Joker venom is now in full force and it's killing or has killed uh, Henry. And the top half of his face, it's like this guy is horrified at what's happening to him, but the lower half... He's got this inhuman, it's almost not even a grin anymore. It's like his his uh, lips are just stretched so far apart. It's actually starting to tear apart his gums, it looks like. And it's not just he's smiling. 
he's it's like his whole face is being disfigured here. I just I like that. And this actually kind of goes into you know, Joker Venom is one of those I guess uh, tools that the Joker uses that I've always had a real soft spot for because of the fact that people die while they laugh. And there's a dichotomy there that I think the Joker as a kind of homicidal performer, I think he would be very attracted to that. You know, people die, which is inherently sad, but they do it while they're laughing, you know, which that's not funny. So it's like it mixes the comedic, you know, giving somebody laughing gas and then they just laugh. And it mixes it with the macabre where you just kill people. And that is a very Joker-like thing to do. He mixes the, the humorous with the macabre and that's the Joker's sense of humor in a nutshell, you know? And that's one of the reasons why the Joker venom is just such a Joker weapon to use. And this is one of the things, I mean... I'm not the world's biggest fan of The Dark Knight, which is to say the movie, The Dark Knight, the Chris Nolan film. I'm not the biggest fan of that in the world. You know, I think it's got a lot going for it. But one of the things that I just kind of regret is that in this day and age of terrorism and biological weapons and all this other shit, what it's hard for Chris Nolan to imagine a biological weapon or a chemical weapon that you could use on somebody where they literally laugh themselves to death. I mean, this is hard for him to imagine, you know, I don't know. So I wish we could, have, I wish we could have seen something like that in the movie, but I don't know. Tim Burton kind of gave it to us, but I just, I don't know. I would have liked to see, to have seen it in the dark Knight too. I mean, to me, this is just one of those things that it should be a Joker mainstay, you know, this should never go away. Cause it's just such a perfect Joker thing. You know, I dig that. Anyway, so uh, now moving right along now into other things, I guess to just kind of break away from, um, actually, you know what? I need to sort of flip back here because I overlooked something. On page 14, Batman and, the, and uh, Gordon are riding around in Gordon's car. And in the second panel, Gordon says, remember I told you about some nutcase who threatened to poison the reservoir? We heard from him again. He sent a tape to Henry Hayden, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's when that stuff starts up. And I told you that we were going to circle back to this. Well, here we are. We don't really find out what happened with the reservoir, but for the for Batman to have not recognized the Joker, apparently whatever happened or didn't happen with the reservoir, Batman never set eyes on the Joker. That, I think, is what we're supposed to take from all of this. Maybe they had a sort of a cat and mouse kind of a ga kind of a thing, or maybe the you know the Joker was just bluffing because that would be again kind of a funny thing to do. What is that? You know, calling in a threat to uh, poison the uh, Gotham Reservoir and then not delivering on it. Isn't that the kind of prank call that the Joker might do just for shits and games? You know, so I don't know. So, but I just I I, I didn't want to let that moment go without remarking on it that yeah again this definitely takes place in the same universe as batman year one so anyway now moving right along we you know getting into uh, page 20 this is one of one of those parts of the story that it's not that i dislike it because i don't but 
I don't understand why these thugs are suddenly on board with the Joker when they were about ready to walk out on him or maybe shoot him earlier in the issue. Now they're suddenly on board with it. Guys, all the Joker has done at this point is kill somebody. He hasn't proved that his little extortion scam is even going to work. So I don't understand why the the mobsters are suddenly singing a, a, a different tune here. But whatever, that's what they're doing, and we kind of have to accept that, so I choose to accept that. Anyway, moving right along, getting into page 21, Batman has another meeting with uh, Gordon at uh, Gordon's office. They exchange information and some other exposition, and usually what Batman does is vanish when Gordon's not looking. And he doesn't do that this time. He, he instead smiles and sarcastically says, May I have your permission to leave? And I don't know. I just think that's kind of funny. It's sort of smart-ass thing I could picture Batman doing. It just works for me. That's the point. So, anyway. <sighs> Moving right along. We're getting into page 22 here. And this is the attempt on um, on uh, George, George Partridge's life. And the police are not fucking around here too much. They basically got searchlights. They've got uh, armed SWAT standing outside of the building. They've got armed SWAT on top of the roof. They've got uh, another SWAT team. They're in the sewer beneath the street. They're inside the bank lobby. I mean, these these people are just fucking everywhere. And then you have uniformed police officers with Tommy guns, shotguns, and who the fuck knows what else inside the bank vault. The idea being... There's no way the Joker can get to this guy. And yet, the Joker gets to the guy anyway. And there's a kind of a humorous moment where Gordon says it's it's one minute past eight. And then George Partridge laughs himself to death. And then one of the uniformed officers says, oh, Captain, one other thing. I think your watch is a minute fast. And I, <laughs> I don't know why, but that's just kind of a smart-ass thing. I don't know. I just, I, I like that. So anyway, moving right along, Batman uh, is about to swoop into action and intercept Melvin and the Joker. But before he does, at the bottom of page 26, we get this establishing shot of the Gotham City skyline, the bridge that Alfred and Bruce are driving around on. And we even get a picture of the uh, this little shot of the off-ramp that uh, Melvin and the Joker's pickup is is going to drive down in, in just a little while. And this is just a, a neat little way of setting up the geography that Brett Blevins is going to be sticking to as he works his way through this sequence. It's just a really neat way of getting all that set up. And I just, I, I dig that moment. So that when the chase finally does start, well, you can just flip back to page 26 and see what the geography is for everything, you know, what the layout of it all is, you know. Anyway, sure enough, at, uh, or rather on page 28, we see Batman drop down onto the pickup truck. He just punches right through the windshield and just smashes the Joker upside the head. And guys, there are certain things that you see in Batman comics that I at least can't get enough of, you know. I can't get enough of seeing Superman swoop through uh, downtown Metropolis. You know, in broad daylight, he's got all these big, tall, shiny buildings all around him, and he's just flying around, and the sunshine is all over the place, and it's reflecting everywhere. It just looks fucking cool. I dig that. 
you know, or another thing is the flash running on water. I love seeing the flash run on water. That just looks fucking cool. And another thing that I just like seeing is Batman punch the Joker in the face. I don't know why, but there's something about watching the jo- about watching Batman in general just kind of kick the Joker's ass, but specifically punch him in the face. I don't know why. I just love that. You know, and we get a really neat little money shot uh, here at the bottom of page 28 where Batman just clocks the guy right in the jaw. And I mean, it just it's it hurts just looking at it. I fucking love this. This is just extremely well done. And and then there comes this moment where, you know, Batman, he doesn't really talk a whole lot of shit throughout all of this. But he he, he does say, give it up. And then the Joker jerks the wheel on the truck. It sends the truck spiraling out of control. It crashes into the river. And uh, Batman, he's basically forced to bail out and uh, just basically watch all of this as he hangs off the bridge. And it's just a really neat little action sequence that it kind of breaks up all the talky talky that had been going on up to this point. And it also... It just kind of sets the tone, I guess, for what's going to be coming later in the story. I just love little chases and action sequences and stuff like this. It's just really well done. Excuse me while I take a drag off my vaporizer here. I'm also going to get a drink off of my coat because I've been talking for what's it been like 40 minutes now or 50. Mm, good stuff. All right. So getting into it here, we get into a, uh, this little bit in the morgue on page 31 where Batman uh, basically wipes his hand across the uh, dead body's well, hand, and it rubs off some of some of the uh, makeup that had been put on Melvin Rypan's dead body to make him look like the Joker. And again, guys, it may seem like a small thing now, but this kind of coloring, where that section where Batman wipes the makeup off of the dead body's hand, this kind of coloring job was cutting edge back in 1993. You didn't see this in just every comic, least of all, every Batman comic. And I just, re- I, I, I mean, look, you can say that, you know, this type of coloring, it looks kind of cheesy or, or whatever now, but guys, back in the day, it wasn't, it, it wasn't just every comic that was colored using computers. And the idea of like using Photoshop to color a comic book as opposed to, you know, color or not colors as opposed to markers or something like that or colored pencils or whatever they used. This was a new idea, you know, and I, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. Maybe it's just nostalgia as part of the reason why I love this issue, you know, for that kind of cheesy looking nineties coloring job, but I just fucking dig it really well done. So anyway, we start building up to, I guess, the climax of the story where we see this really elaborate handoff for 
um, the money that Otto Drexel is, is giving to the Joker. He drops it into the back of a pickup truck as it drives down the street. A semi-truck pulls out into the street behind the pickup truck to cut off anybody who's following the truck. Somebody attaches the uh, briefcase to a uh, passing helicopter. The helicopter uh, delivers it to the Joker. And so, in theory, there's really no way that somebody can follow the briefcase without being noticed. And what I like is how Batman doesn't need to follow. I mean, he has a sort of a failsafe inside of the briefcase in case he's just not able to get the drop on the Joker. Well, they'll still be able to track him, but the Joker finds the tracking device and then they get rid of it. And that's okay because Batman's already on the roof. And on page 36, we get a, just a quick little one-panel flashback to goings-on at Ace Chemicals where the Red Hood had no no choice but to dive into that, that huge vat of chemicals in order to make his escape. And you can see like the shape of uh, Batman with his cape flapping around on the catwalk up above. It's just a really neat, really effective one-page little flashback that it gets the job done. You know what's going on here. And if you're at all familiar with the killing joke, which I think is another thing that we're supposed to assume is in continuity with this story, which I kind of have problems with just because I'm not a big killing joke kind of guy. I don't know. I mean, whatever. If you want this to be like the origin of the Joker or something like that from the 50s, I forget the exact issue number, but the origin of the Joker where it actually, that whole um, Red Hood thing was actually first, as far as I know, introduced into continuity. And it was a... I think a, a kind of interesting little insight into, you know, the fact that maybe the Joker has not multiple beginnings in the sense of, if I have a history, I like it to be multiple choice. I don't mean like, you know, retarded stuff like that. I mean, more from the angle that, you know, the Joker started off as the Red Hood and that was one life of crime. But then he had another starting point as the Joker, whenever he fell into the, the vat of chemicals and acid and all that other shit. That's what truly turned him into the Joker. And I just, I, I kind of like that as, you know, having that in the Joker's background, you know, the origin of, it's in the greatest Joker stories ever told, uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. So, I don't think it was drawn by Dick Sprang, but maybe Sheldon Moldoff. I don't know, it was one of those guys. So, anyway, whatever. So, whatever happens, happens. Batman unmasks himself on page 37, and then after that, I mean, you pretty well know that the story's over at this point because, honestly, we're running out of pages. But there's no way that Batman is going to let the Joker get away from him again. I mean, the Joker has literally nowhere to run. That doesn't stop him from trying, though. So he fires off some Joker gas at Batman, who basically blocks his mouth until the, the, uh, the gas clears. And the Joker then tries sucker punching Batman. And then Batman turns it around on him. He quotes the Joker's exact dialogue from earlier in this, in, uh, this issue where he says, A rather boring punch. No style. No alarm. Not worth a bit more than 6.5. And of course, the Joker freaks out over that. 6.5? That was a perfect 10. So Batman uh, knocks him out with one punch and, and then... <laughs> uh, 
by way of correcting him, says, no, actually, what I, that, that punch that I just gave you, that was a 10. And with that, you know, we get this little bit of a denouement on, on uh, page 40, where we see Melvin Rypan's tomb. And basically, I guess, sort of falling action between Bruce and Alfred where Bruce remarks out loud that, well, we can take comfort in one thing. We'll never have to worry about the Joker again. But Yeah, right, that's what you think. But at the bottom of page 40, we see uh, Bruce. He's, he's wearing this, this hat, and it's covering his face in such a way that it's actually casting the shadow of Batman's mask over his face. I just fucking love it. Again, I love it when artists do this, because... It just kind of rem- it's a reminder to the reader that who Batman is, what Batman is, his mission, his objectives, all that stuff. That stuff is intrinsic to Bruce Wayne now. In fact, there may not be a Bruce Wayne anymore. There may only be Batman because it it colors literally every single aspect of this man's existence. And I just fucking love it when artists do that. So, anyway, And that's pretty much the end of the issue, at least as far as the story is concerned. But we do get this really neat little pinup gallery uh, at the end of the issue. And I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing some of these some of these uh, pinups from uh, this Visions of a Legend pinup gallery, they're actually maybe rejected comic book covers that for just what well, not rejected. That's maybe not the right way to put it. Maybe unused. Maybe maybe that's more like it. But you could picture some of these serving as uh, comic book covers, and I guess a sort of a generic sense. I mean, uh, one of them is actually drawn... Uh, this one is... Uh, it's actually drawn by uh, Kevin McGuire, and it's basically Batman, or at least the silhouette of Batman. And he's standing against this kind of... a uh, a collage of not just his rogues gallery, although them too, but his allies too. You know, uh, Superman is in there, uh, the Tim Drake Robin, Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, Nightwing, the Barbara, the Barbara Gordon uh, Batgirl, miscellaneous and sundry uh, supervillains. And you could see this being like the cover to an anniversary issue or something like that. And there's a Another cover, or not a cover, there's another uh, pinup. This one is done by Brian Stelfreeze, where Batman is fighting, looks like, Amygdala. And in the background, you've got the ventriloquist. And instead of wearing a Scarface, uh, a, a Scarface puppet on his hand, he's wearing a sock on his hand. And, well, in Nightfall, there was a moment when the ventriloquist and amygdala they did kind of hang out together in a toy store which is where this cover or this pinup is drawn it takes place in a toy store and the ventriloquist he couldn't find a scarface dummy and so he had another personality another split personality he was talking to it's actually pretty simple really it's a sock on his hand and this the sock's name is socko And it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, was that story originally intended for Shadows of the Bat? And so because of that, Brian Stelfreeze drew this as a cover 
But then whatever happened happened, and then that story got moved over to uh, some other book. I think that's actually an issue of Batman, and so this issue, you know, that the cover for that issue of, of uh, Shadow of the Bat never got used, and so, well, we have it. May as well use it. Let's throw it into this this pinup gallery for Legends of the Dark Knight number 50. I mean, is, is that what happened? Because this would actually be a pretty good cover. Just from a technical standpoint, there's plenty of room at the top of the uh, page to have the logo and all the other information, you know, the DC uh, uh, graphic and the Shadow of the Bat logo and all that stuff. And then there's plenty of space at the bottom of the cover to have text and, you know, a, 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 a barcode and all of that stuff. It just kind of makes you wonder, you know? Was this originally supposed to be a cover? I mean, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence indicating that, yeah, maybe it, maybe it was, you know? So anyway, like I say, by virtue of the fact that this is a pinup gallery, it doesn't really lend itself easily to uh, talking about all that well. At least not in a podcast type of format. But it, this is nevertheless a, a really neat little uh, pinup gallery if you have the chance i do recommend checking it out it's like i say it's just really neat really well done i dig it so and there's also a uh, mike kaluta pin up in there as well for those of you who are big shadow fans so anyway and that i think is uh well that's pretty much it for legends of the dark knight number 50 now as to next week i'm going to be talking about legends of the dark knight annual number five but that's next week so I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though, so bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime. Never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I've ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby. I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views from the Long Box to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I, I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comic book world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. Every Tuesday or so at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com
Trekker Talk, a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at trekkertalk.com. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? 
If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Italy.